Hey, good evening. Um, if I am a, a little more tired and a little less energetic this evening, um, it's because this morning um, we launched our new location in Columbia Heights at the Gala Theater. Um, yeah, so, yeah we, we should celebrate that. It went so well. I mean, it just, it was perfect. Um, yeah, it was really an amazing service. Um, in fact, a lot of the people that were from the morning or from the evening were there this morning helping us celebrate. Um, it was just such a good service, um, but it takes a lot. It's the first time we were ever really allowed in the space to, to like try things out. So we'd been in there to tour it, but we'd never been able to try the projector out or the soundboard or anything because it's a, it's a live theater and there's just never any time. So we were, we were walking in this morning having no idea what was going to happen and, and God worked it out. It was just incredible. Um, it's about twice, two to three times the size of our space in Columbia Heights. And so we were really excited about being able to grow into the space. The problem was, and we don't know all where people came from, but just people showed up from out of nowhere, and we had people already saying, um, we filled the space up already, which is kind of crazy, and so um, maybe it's just first Sunday excitement. So that was kind of, it was, it was a great day, but it's also been a long day, because we got there early this morning. Pastor Jessica, where is she? She in the back. Um, she got there, oh, I don't even know what time, before 7 a.m. this morning, and uh, Jordan, where's Jordan? I... I Jordan's out in the hall. He's hiding. Um, Jordan uh, is our music director. Um, he's the guy who's on the drums sometimes, but he pulls the whole band together. Um, and he just did a phenomenal job. He was there super early. And we just have, we have such an incredible team. Um, I was thinking about it this evening. And I came in and people were setting up coffee and putting out things on the table and greeting. And it just reminded me again of this, this refrain that I just come back to often. That, that the table is not made up of the gifts and the talents of the few, um, but of the sacrifice of the many. Um, and I'm just so um, glad to be a part of a community um, where we are powered by the people who are part of it. Um, and so, yeah, just want to say thank you to everyone who's a part of the table and makes it possible. So last week, well, let me back up. So we, um, the world is just chaotic and it, so many things uncer seem uncertain, and so anytime things seem uncertain or chaotic, I think it's good to remember why we exist, and, and that's Jesus. I said last week, I made a confession that probably pastors shouldn't make, but I'm like, I'm really not hot on church people or Christians as a general rule, right? Like, they're just kind of annoying and self-righteous. Um, it's true. And, um, but the reason I continue to get up in the morning, the thing that gives me energy to keep doing this is Jesus, because Jesus is such a radical, radical and transformational figure um, in the history of the world. Um, and he not only transforms the world and provides a new way of living, but he invites us into it and frees us through his life, death, and resurrection, frees us from the things that hold us captive. I'm just so captivated by the person of Jesus. And I think sometimes, because we have grown up in a world that has been influenced by Jesus' teachings, we forget exactly how radical those teachings are and were to the people who first heard them. So last week we began the story of Jesus. We're going to spend all the way until Easter, kind of walking through this, the life of Jesus. Um, but we began the story of Jesus where any story that at least begins with his adulthood has to begin, and that's with John the Baptist. All four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. He is a crazy, raving lunatic. That is the easiest and the best way to describe him. He is a dude 
Standing in the desert, screaming at anyone who will listen, turn or burn, the end of the world as you know it is coming. He is the guy on the street corner that holds a sign saying the end is near. That's John's message. The end of the world as you know it is near. And he like eats locusts and honey and he wears clothes from animals that he has killed. He is a weird dude. But he also, it's true, he's also, he, he, he baptizes people and calls them to repentance. But, but most importantly, he says, I, he said, I have been called to, to, to make way for one who is coming after me, one who is so transformational, one who is so incredible that I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then John is doing his thing. And there are thousands of people gathered around him because he knew how to draw a crowd. He was theatrical. And so there's all these people coming down to see John and all these people who are being baptized. And then one day he's baptizing people in the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden in the distance he sees this, this guy heading towards him, this lone figure on the horizon. And John stops, ev- or, yeah, John stops everything he's doing and he just turns the whole crowd toward towards Jesus he says look 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 there and people are like what why what are we looking at because I mean Jesus does not have an entourage there's no posse there's no one traveling with him there's no royalty there's no pomp and circumstance it's just an average dude trudging through the sand and John says look there's the Lamb of God who picks up and carries off the sins of the world it's a powerful moment so then we get all the, the stuff, you know, John, Jesus like flips the script. He asked John to baptize him. Jesus should have been baptizing John, but he asked John to baptize him. There's, there's an upside down reality to everything that Jesus does. And then what we discover in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that Jesus comes onto the scene. He makes his grand appearance, and then he retreats to the desert, So immediately he comes on, he makes this big grand entrance, and then the next thing we know, Jesus, we're told, is led into the desert. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And today I want to explore um, the temptation of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the, by the diablos. Um, uh, your Bible might translate it as devil. Another way of translating it would be the slanderer or the accuser. So the accuser or the slanderer leads him into the desert. Now, some of you at this moment may be doing, um, may, may be tripped up over, like, this is just a little fantastical, uh, the devil leading Jesus into the desert. And if that's you, right, you're getting a little tripped up by that. Let me just, let me just remind us that anytime you see anything in Scripture that you are like, huh, I don't know what I think about that. Any, and, and particularly any like, ancient literature, it was expensive to write anything down. It was expensive to write anything down. And, and so if they t- like, chose to re- remember a story, particularly of all three Gospels, there's something here they want us to know, something here they want us to grasp, to understand that's important, pivotal to the story. So don't get tripped up on this diablos, the accuser, the slander, but there's something here that the authors want us to know. So the devil leads Jesus into the desert. And it's important to know that the story of Jesus' temptation 
is not a, a how-to, three steps to overcome temptation. There, there is something you can learn from this, right? There are some steps to overcome temptation that we can learn from this story. But that's not the point. That's not why they included this story. The reason this is included, I believe, is because Jesus is tempted by the very things that we are tempted by. In fact, we're told, I think it's in Hebrews, that says, look, you have a Savior who has been tempted by all the things that you have been tempted with. He knows what you're going through. So Jesus has this incredible moment in the desert and then um, with John the Baptist, and then he goes off by himself for 40 days and 40 nights, and he is led by the tempter, by the accuser. And, and whether we call it Diablos, all of us have been led to a dark place, led into the wilderness by a tempter, by an accuser, by that voice in our head. And Jesus, before he begins his earthly ministry, so he kind of comes on the scene, he makes his big appearance, and then before he begins his earthly ministry, he's led into the desert to be tempted. And he has three temptations that he struggles with. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus is human. Jesus is 100% human and Jesus is 100% divine. Sometimes what I think we do is we make Jesus overly divine. But Jesus was human just like us and he was hungry and he was weak. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You claim to be from the guy or be the person who created the heavens and earth simply by speaking it into being. Come on. Show us what you're made of, Jesus. Show us a little magic. But then what's interesting is Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus, by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, is taking us back to the moment when they're in the wilderness, when Israel's in the wilderness, and they are, they are, they are there for 40 years being led through the, the wilderness. And he takes them back to that moment when they're going through the wilderness and they are hungry, and God provides manna from heaven. And they had to be dependent on God to provide for them every single day. Jesus answered, from Deuteronomy 8, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think the first thing that Jesus was struggling with was to go his own way, to create his own path, to do his own thing. Because temptation, it, temptation is always a temptation, is always leads us to something that, that seeks, the, seeks the good of the self. It's a selfish pursuit, right? We, we rarely are tempted to do something good for someone. Or if we are, it's really easy to overcome that temptation, right? You feel like you should volunteer on Saturday or write an extra large check to a nonprofit. That temptation is so easy to overcome. It is the other temptations, the temptations that serve self, those are the ones that are harder to overcome. And so the devil's like, hey, come on, make this, do your thing, play by my rules, let's have a little game here. And just like, no, I'm going to stay on track. I have been called for a purpose. And in every word that, like, I, it is written that man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Like, I am synced up with what God is doing. I will not live by the kingdoms of this world. I will, I will live in accordance with the one who sent me. Temptation is always an invitation to act on our own behalf. 
Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, here's how I always heard that, that verse. When I was growing up as a kid, I kind of viewed it as, I don't know why, um, I was actually reading uh, uh, writings by someone else, and they said very, something very similar. So there must be something in the way the story gets told that I kind of viewed this like Star Trek, that he's like, beam me up Scotty, right? They're on the bottom of uh, the, the, the temple, and then all of a sudden, just like, boom, they're at the top. And for the other thing, so it's like, beam me up Scotty. And the other thing I always thought was that they were on the spire, like a steeple, maybe because that's the only thing I thought of when I thought of churches. So I kind of think of Jesus and the devil, like grappling on, holding on to a steeple, and looking out on everything below. That's probably not what happened. In fact, what we know from the historian Josephus, uh, Josephus is, is the best historian or the best author to get a sense of the, the, the life setting that Jesus was lived within. He, he um, comes about 100, 150 years after Jesus. But Josephus tells us that in the temple in Jerusalem, if you went to the south or the southeast corner and you stood on the highest point of the temple, you would overlook the Kidron Valley. And it literally went hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet down. Josephus says that when you would look down, it went so far down that you would get dizzy and have to step back. So the, the, the readers, the hearers of this story, that's the image that they would have had. Not of beam me up Scotty on a, on a steeple spire, but they would have seen him standing at the edge of the temple, looking into the Kidron Valley. And the devil took him up here and says, if you are. The other thing is, the, the temptation that keeps coming is, if you are who you say you are. And the thing I, this is just like a side note, and I didn't even say, it's not on my nose, and I didn't say this this morning, but this temptation follows Jesus, I think, to his last moments on earth. Because if Jesus is 100% human, the moment that he's about ready to go to the cross, the moment that he is, he, is, he is praying, and he's praying so intently that he begins to sweat tears, and says, can this cup pass from me? If he's 100% human, in that moment, he has to be having second thoughts about whether he's a crazy man. Maybe he's not really the son of God. Maybe he's delusional. And that temptation begins in, these story, in this story. If you are, come on, if you are. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now, the other thing you need to, to, to kind of imagine here is that Jesus and the devil are in like a, a, a rap battle going back and forth. But instead of whatever Eminem throws down, uh, it's all I know about rap battles. I saw, I saw Eight Mile like 10 years ago. I'm a big Eminem fan. Anyway, um, I am. What's wrong with that? Um, so uh, imagine Eminem and Eight Mile um, going back and forth, but instead of whatever it is that their 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 rhymes have, uh, it, it's they're they're quoting scripture to one another. So the, the the accuser, the slander, is quoting scripture to Jesus, and Jesus is quoting scripture back. I'll see your Psalms and I'll raise you Deuteronomy. So so that that he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I think in this moment he's taunting Jesus. Didn't God promise to take care of you? Come on. Don't you have any faith? Come on, Jesus. Don't you believe? Jump. Jump. It'll, it'll be great. The angels will, will, will take care of you. And I think this is the same test that modern Christians, we struggle with. 
Because all of us have heard the sermon, three steps to get what you want from God. It's typically not named that, but this is essentially what it is. You need to do this, this, and this, and then God will produce whatever it is that you want, that you need. But you've got to jump through the right hoops. And if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't, you don't get whatever it is you're looking for, then maybe you didn't do it right. It sometimes seems as if modern Christianity has turned God into a genie in a bottle. And what you need to know is if your Christianity looks like that, that's not Christianity, that's pagan superstition. That's not the God of the Bible. Because the, in the God of the Bible, in the God of the Bible, we are told that God cannot be bribed, but yet we are simply to come and ask as children. Because God wants to give us good gifts. But we cannot manipulate God to get God to act on our behalf. That's so important to remember. And most of us don't like intentionally think that way, but I think sometimes we forget that God is a good father who wants to provide good things. Now, does that mean we get everything we ask for? No. And I understand that better now that I have a two-year-old who is the cutest, most manipulative child in the entire world. She's so good at asking me for things and negotiating. Just one more, Dad, just one more. And she leans forward with like her finger and I'm like, whatever it is she's asking for, I'm like, fine, you can have it. But it's not always good for her. So yesterday we were at Starbucks and she wanted just one more cake pop, just one more. I'm like, no, you've had one cake pop. That is, I'm already in trouble with mom, right? You can't have more cake pops. But God is a, a good father, but he cannot be bribed. But I think the temptation in this moment was, come on, Jesus. Let, let, let's, let's manipulate a little bit. Let's, let's play with this. Don't you have faith? Don't you believe? But the third temptation, the first two, in my opinion, they're just the, the warm-up act. But the third temptation, I think that's the key moment. That's, that's the true temptation. But before I, I talk about the third temptation, I want to talk for a moment about power. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that every day that I read the newspaper or every day that I watch television, it seems that there is another powerful person who is being stupid. It just, they, you're just like, what is wrong with you? Why did you make that decision? Why did you make that choice? And then the second thing I think is, first, how stupid can you be? And then I thought, if I was as powerful as you, I would make much better choices and be much wiser than you. And it leads us to ask the question, though, why is it that power generally doesn't make people better but often makes them worse? Why is it, does it seem that once people have power, they go off the rail? Why is it that power corrupts? Why is it that people who are extraordinarily wealthy tend to have a harder time using their wealth to help others than people with almost nothing? In fact, there's some fascinating research out there on, on people in the lowest income quadrant, how much they give away as a percentage of their income compared to people in the highest. Because we all think, you know what, I would be more generous if I had more money, but the problem is the more money you have, the tighter you grip it. There's, there's research out uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, billionaires and what percentage um, or how much the, the top, the wealthiest people in the country give. And you get the top two, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, are just, they're just throwing money around. They, they're giving around away a ton of money. 
But then you jump like to number three and it just plummets to like 2% or something or 1% or even, it's just, it's minuscule. And, and I think the reason is, is it, it, well, the reason is, is that the, the power and wealth and influence feed on themselves. Once you have a little, you want more. But throughout Jesus' time on earth, he taught and modeled something that's not necessarily new to us, but to the original hearers in the first century world would have been earth-shatteringly, like, would just been of earth-shattering. He taught and modeled, Jesus taught and modeled that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. No one had ever heard anything like that before. Because if you had power in Jesus' day and age, you took as much advantage of that power as you possibly could. Even the tax collectors who were, who were Jewish citizens, who were, didn't work for the Roman government, they were told, look, you need to collect 10% tax. But you can collect however much you want. And if you collect more, it's just gravy. You line your pockets. That's the story of Zacchaeus, right? Remember the guy Zacchaeus uh, was a wee little man and a wee little man was he? That was his problem. That's why everyone hated Zacchaeus um, because he was, he was a tax collector and he was gouging his fellow citizens. But Jesus says, look, power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. And Jesus says, look, wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. In fact, I think Jesus would say that wealth is a test. If you have been given wealth, it is a test to see how well you steward it. Now, a few of us, myself included, want to sign up for that test, right? I, I, think, <laughs> I think that I could do quite well. But the truth of the matter is, you're already wealthy, right? You're, you're wealthier. Most of us here are wealthier than 70, 80, 90% of the world's globe. And Jesus is constantly saying, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Loosen it. Loosen the grip on whatever's in your hand. What's in your hand? Jesus provides us with an upside-down way of living. Jesus has come to introduce something completely new, completely transformational, something the world has never seen before. And throughout Jesus' ministry, there is this epic tension. There's this, there's this battle between those with power and those with wealth and those with influence and privilege and religious authority who do not want to give it up. And throughout his life, Jesus would be tempted to go to the kingdoms of this world and take what is rightfully his. His disciples are pretty sure down to the end that Jesus is going to throw down at the last minute and he is going to start a revolution. And they're going to rule. And they're going to be like kings. Because remember, James and John, like it's towards the end, and James and John are like, hey, hey Jesus, when you get to the throne someday, remember us. Take care of us, okay? Can we be on your right and your left? Again, the devil took him, verse 8, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. There's some high mountains north of Jerusalem, most likely that the, the readers or the hearers would have imagined. You can see Jericho in the distance. I kind of imagine it being late at night or towards dusk and the, there's just candle lights all sprinkled throughout the valley. You can just see for miles. And he says, all this can be yours. 
you can be king. Jesus, how's, how's, that, um, how's that wandering around with, with no roof over your head working out for you? Remember, the, what's the, the text? The, the foxes have holes. The Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. How's that working out for you, Jesus? All this can be yours. If you just play by the rules that this world operates by. There are people willing to rise up. You are good, Jesus. You are, you are charismatic and people will follow you. The only chance we have to overthrow the Romans is you. Like, this, this could work. And Jesus, Jesus knows this. He knows it all through his life. He's just, like, he's special. He's got charisma. People follow him. They, they hang on his every word. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Just a bit more power. Just a little more glory. A little more wealth. Just a little more influence. All you have to do is recognize the world works. All you have to do is bow down. Play by our rules. Just for a moment. But Jesus says, look, my kingdom cannot be bartered for. I have come to establish a new and a different way of living in the world, a way of peace, a way of justice. I've come to establish a kingdom where the last will be first, a kingdom where power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful, where wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy, and where influence is not primarily for the benefit of the influential. A kingdom like no other, an upside-down kingdom. A kingdom where the subjects are not at the whim and the selfish rule, or the selfishness of the rulers and the kings. Right? This is their image, that what they know of leaders and people with wealth and with people with power, what, what they know, the image they have is that people take advantage of other people because of their influence, because of their power, because of their wealth. Our world isn't like that at all, luckily. Um, you know, it's not like the rich get richer and the powerful get more powerful. People use their influence to enrich themselves and their friends and their family. And this kingdom, and this kingdom, come on, think about this. And this kingdom, the king would lay down his life instead of asking you to lay down yours. He would lay down his life. There'd never been such a thing. People, and people would say, it's not the way the world works, Jesus. You need to understand the way that it works. Have you heard of a word called real politic? This is the way the world operates. Get with the system. You want to change things, Jesus? You can be a, change, you can be a transformational agent, agent. You just need to play by the rules of the world. Don't be foolish. Don't throw away your vote. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Luke chapter 4 verse 13. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And then Jesus returned to, the Gal- to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and the news about him spread throughout the countryside. Jesus leaves this moment in the desert, these 40 days and the 40 nights, this moment of testing, and he begins his earthly ministry and he blows up overnight. He knew he was going to blow up every, overnight. Like, Jesus was just, he, he just had, he had the it factor. And in that desert, he knew, he knew his star was going to rise. And he's got these internal demons saying, you could rule. 
that you could be a king. You see that castle on the hill over there where Herod lives or the palace on the hill? That could be yours. But he refused it. Because Jesus had come to do something completely different. Jesus had come to provide a new way of living. To come, he'd come to model a new way of being in the world. But more than that, he'd come to provide a way for us to be free from the ways, from the stories, from the things that hold us captive. He'd come to provide ransom. He'd come to provide freedom. He'd come to provide forgiveness. And he was willing to lay down his life to provide that freedom. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus has gathered his disciples around. Jesus is always doing leadership, mess, uh, leadership training with his disciples. He's hoping that they'll spread the message of this new kingdom. In fact, even the word good news, evangelion, was a word that the Roman government used to proclaim good news. It means good news. It's a word like when there was good news about the Roman Empire, they would sp- the evangelist would spread it throughout the, the empire. So Jesus is hoping that, that the, this, this band of disciples can carry this, this message on, not only through their actions and the way they live, but through their words. And so he's constantly like giving them leadership messages, how they should live, what this new kingdom is about. And they always seem to be missing it. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he's gathered them around. He says, look, for, this, for even the son of man, for even the most powerful person in the world, the, the son of man, the son of God, the divine, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the night when which Jesus was betrayed, we, we celebrate it every week through this table. But the moment right before he, he invites them to the dinner table, what does Jesus do? He, he invites them in, and then, and this is, they know that something big is coming. They're not sure what is coming, but they know something big is coming, and he invites them in, and then he gets down on his knees. And he washes their feet. He serves them. And then what does he say? Do as I have done. Go and do likewise. Do you want to know what it looks like to be powerful in my kingdom? Serve. And Jesus makes a decision that he is not going to go the the way of the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms of this world, a world that says me first, that I'm in it for me. I'm in it to get all I can get. But Jesus says, I've come to be part of an a different way, a different kingdom. And do you know what Jesus valued more than the kingdoms of this world, more than palaces and wealth and influence and privilege? He valued you and he valued me. The arc of the gospel, the arc of scripture is that for God so loved the world. He so loved us. He so loved creation that he's willing to enter into creation and to give of himself. Because Jesus knows what many of you know. That no matter how much money you have or how much power, it can't heal broken relationships or get you forgiveness. It just can't. No amount of power can reverse the impact of sin and brokenness. The kingdom of this world, the values of this world, they don't even intersect in any kind of meaningful way with the things that are most important to the human heart and the human soul. 
And any of you that have had some amount of power or influence or wealth, you know this. Because you always thought, if I had just a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. If I just get the next promotion, if I get the next raise. Some of you, maybe you haven't experienced this, but maybe a family member has. And they were always, their entire life, were thinking, if I can just get to that next hump, then I will be okay. Then all will be well. But, but you never are. Because ultimately, that's not the longing of your heart. That's not the longing of your soul. And Jesus says, I've come to do something different. The problem is that for so many of us, the reason that we're tempted by money and power and influence and getting more and more and more is it's all we've ever seen. It's all we know. And Jesus says, look, I've come to show you a better way. The stories that you've been told since birth of what it means to be successful and what it means to be a person, a, a respectable person, he said those stories, they were a lie. Let me show you a new and a better way. In the new upside-down kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And power will be leveraged for the powerful, or for the powerless. And wealth will be leveraged for those in need. And influence would be leveraged for those without a voice. But the problem is, this doesn't sit well with the wealthy or with the powerful. And this is the tension, particularly with the religious leaders of the day, because Jesus threatens their hold, their grip on power. And it makes them nervous. And ultimately, this story ends of this revolutionary king, this revolutionary leader. It leads to his death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll pick this up next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of your, we thank you for the vulnerability of your own temptation. We thank you that you shared these stories with your disciples, these, these temptations with those who knew you best around the campfire. We thank you that they have captured them and reminded us that the same things that we are tempted, uh, tempted with, to go our own way, to manipulate and use you for our own power and our own privilege and our own wealth, our, our tendency to seek after human power, leveraging what we've been given for ourselves and not for others. We thank you that we serve a Savior that was tempted just like us. And we thank you that you have provided us freedom and have invited us to live a better way. In Jesus' name.